welcome to this sepsis research feed words of sepsis podcast over the course of eight episodes we've been talking to sepsis survivors and families about their experiences our hope is that through these podcasts many more people will become aware of sepsis and that some of the loss and suffering related to sepsis can be prevented as you increase your own knowledge and the knowledge of others. This episode is particularly poignant for us. It was recorded by our wonderful supporter Rachel shortly before her sudden death. We would like to dedicate this episode to Rachel's memory in recognition of her ardent desire to spread awareness of sepsis and help others. We were so grateful for Rachel's tremendous support and assistance, and that of all those who've contributed to these podcasts and made this project possible. Please do listen, share these words of sepsis, and help us to raise awareness and save lives. In this episode, recorded in the summer of 2022, Rachel talked about how an undiagnosed kidney stone went on to have far-reaching consequences for her. The story she told focused on her life after sepsis and the challenges that she faced in the intervening four years. I wasn't aware that I had sepsis. And then as I came out of hospital, no one told me I'd had sepsis until about a week later, and then I didn't actually know what it was. They discharged me home with absolutely no signposting to any support whatsoever. I was given my discharge letter, all my drugs, um, and I was sent home. The next couple of weeks, I was absolutely exhausted, sleeping a lot, not feeling myself at all. And it was a week later that I'd gone to the doctor and I said to her, oh, I think I need to tell you I've been in hospital. And she said, oh, I think you need to sit down. So I sat down and she said to me, do you know what's happened to you? I said, well, I've been in hospital. I've had double pneumonia. And she said, oh, well, you've been in hospital. You nearly died. She said, you've had sepsis, at which point I burst into tears because I was shocked. And then she said, do you know what it is? I said, no, not really. And she went on to explain. And then I went home. So even at that point, she hadn't said to me, it's not advisable for you to go back to work. She knew what my job was. So I went back to start the new school term. Now, as I said, I worked with primary aged pupils. So a few days, it may have been a week into the term, one of the boys at school coughed into my face. He didn't mean to, he just, they don't understand space. He was only little, um, Coughed into my space. Obviously, my immune system was completely shot at that stage. And I thought absolutely nothing of it. That really started everything that I can only describe as three years of absolute hell. So living with post-sepsis syndrome, I'm going to try and make this brief. I've had an MI, which is a myocardial infarction, a heart attack due to sepsis, because that gave me atrial fibrillation. So I now have a stent in my heart, and I'm on four medications just for my heart because of that. I've got scarring on my lungs, 
I was unable to walk, basically. I was unable to move because I couldn't breathe. So I lived with atrial fibrillation after that heart attack. I lived with scarred lungs. I had to start to learn how to walk properly again. My cognitive function is uh, quite bad. So as well as being perimenopausal, so I refer to my brain fogs and when I can't think of words or I say words backwards as the menopause brain, it's also the sepsis brain, which is a double whammy. I rang the doctor at some stage and said, I'm worried about my mental health. And I had been living with PTSD. I'm pretty much through that now. I put on an inordinate amount of weight because I was so sedentary, because I was so poorly. I lost use of so much of my muscle in my muscles in my leg. And I didn't stop working, which I don't quite know how I can even justify this to myself. I didn't stop working till April 2020. And I just made myself more and more and more sick by continuing to work. Then lockdowns happened and I just thought this is, this is the perfect time, if there ever is a perfect time. I've got to stop. I've got to recover. Rachel felt that her recovery began when she started having therapy. The therapist was great. It was all over the phone. Obviously, by then lockdowns had happened, but it was all going to be over Zoom anyway. Sorry, not the phone, by Zoom. And she really helped me to understand what PTSD is and how to manage it for myself and that it's okay to have it. It's okay to live with PTSD, what it can do to you physically, mentally, emotionally. Living with PTSD, uh, sorry, living with post-sepsis syndrome has also had, took a massive toll on my relationship because I've been ill for so long, for such a prolonged time, and not really knowing what was going on with my body, but being unable to do so many things. So I would, as always, convince myself that I was fine, even though I knew I wasn't. And I'd book tickets for this, that, and the other, and then I couldn't go because I couldn't actually stand up. And it was my mental way of dealing with it, I think, thinking, oh, yeah, you'll be fine. Everything's all right. But actually, once I started having the therapy, I realized that I didn't have to do all that nonsense and I could just stop. I wanted to be, so living with PSS, I wanted to be invisible. I didn't want anybody to notice me. Um, I started wearing like the biggest clothes you could buy all in black because I just thought, well, that will just make me invisible, which I know is stupid. And I didn't want any of them to touch my skin as far as they could because it all just felt so, so wrong. I didn't even understand what was going on with me most of the time because I didn't know anything about sepsis because I didn't know I'd had it. And then when I educated myself on it, I didn't really understand what post-sepsis syndrome was until I educated myself on that. And I realized that everything that happened to me since has been post-sepsis syndrome. So I've started back. I go to a gym three, four times a week. 
I'm now well enough to exercise properly and I've started back swimming. Oh, I used to love swimming and I still do. But I tried it earlier on and I couldn't even do one length. And I used to do like a mile a day before work. So I started back that. It's been a fight. The whole thing is a fight. And then having to, I feel like I'm having to reinvent myself because I have a new life, because um, I grieve for my preceptor's life. I really do grieve for that life. And it is having... You know what? The strength to get through when you didn't even know what you were getting through because you didn't know what was happening to you. And then coming out of the other side, still relatively normal. (laughs) And then thinking, right, what what do I do now? Because so many options have been taken away. So many professional options have been taken away from me due to my health status. And more importantly, me... Now understanding the importance of listening to your own body and actually taking notice of it as opposed to the me before that was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll go back to work because that's what I'm meant to do. And, oh, you know, 20 minutes down to the car, that's not that bad because that's what I was like. And I can't do that anymore. I have to listen to my body and I have to follow what it wants me to do. And I've forgotten the major thing that I have now got late onset type 1 diabetes. I'd actually forgotten to say that earlier. Every single day still is hard, but I now don't have to think about can I get down the stairs to the car? Because um, I don't know if I'll make it or not. I just do it. I don't have to think about walking to the shop because I can do it. Whereas for a good few years, two and a half, three years, I just couldn't do it because I couldn't walk that far. So I have that much of my life back. I can now go out and enjoy things. But there's so much um, mental scarring of such a trauma. And a lot of it, A lot of it could have been prevented had I had support upon discharge and signposted to various groups, charities that I now know exist that I didn't know at the time. What helped me was I was at home and I was scowling around the internet trying to work out what happened to me and what sepsis was and how people manage it afterwards. And I came across the UK Sepsis Trust and they had online groups for survivors. They had online groups for bereaved families. So I signed up, well, I requested to be part of one of the online groups for survivors. Now, this was January 2020. So remember, I'd had sepsis in August 2018. January 2020, I went on to my first meeting with them. And I remember saying, no, I beg your pardon, it's 21. And I remember listening to people's stories. And then it came to my turn to speak and I burst into tears because I hadn't ever spoken about what happened to me, really. And I couldn't really fathom out what what was going on still. And I said to them, you know, I'm 
however long I'd been, uh, 18, 19, 20, two and a half years out of it. And I said, I feel like a fraud coming on here because I should be fine because this is two and a half years later. But actually, there were people on there who were saying, you know, I had it 10 years ago and I'm still recovering. Or I had it five years ago. Um, Various things, you know, it just goes on and on and on. The effects of sepsis are never ending for some people. And recovery can also be never really ending. But what that group did for me was it allowed me to speak and it allowed me to talk about my experience, which I'd never vocalised before to anyone else other than my family. And it's really difficult for people to understand if they haven't been through it. Obviously, same as anything else. And I started gathering strength from going on those meetings. And then much later down the line, I came across sepsis research feet and that um, what work they do with the research side of it, the scientific research side of it. Rachel said at the time that there was one thing she wished had been different for her. Someone needed to have a conversation with me, which would say, okay, your recovery is going to look like this, possibly going to look like this. Honestly, I think that would have been a game changer, an absolute game changer. Rachel shared her experience of life post-sepsis very frankly and bravely in a story that's not always easy listening. We hope that her story will act as her legacy, testament to her spirit and desire to help others. We really hope that listening to this Words of Sepsis podcast has helped increase your awareness of sepsis. Do check out all eight episodes in the series and share them as widely as you can, using them to start conversations with friends and family about sepsis. It could save a life, possibly even your own. If you've been affected by anything you've heard, or you'd like more information about the groundbreaking research into sepsis that the charity funds, please do visit our website, www.sepsisresearch.org.uk, where you can also make a donation. You'll be helping us to save lives today and fund research for tomorrow.